Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Lori Lyons-Williams. She's the CEO of Menlo Park, California and Vancouver, BC-based Abdera Therapeutics. Abdera is a startup developing targeted antibody drugs loaded with potent microdoses of radiation to give them extra tumor-killing punch. This type of treatment modality, targeted radiopharmaceuticals, has been around for decades. But targeted radiation hasn't lived up to the full potential scientists have long imagined. Abdera, though, is part of an emerging crop of new companies that are working through some of the classic technical challenges. Abdera announced a $142 million combined Series A and B financing back in April, which I wrote about at that time for subscribers of Timmerman Report. In this conversation, we talk about Lori's early career experiences in sales and marketing, a couple key turning points for her growth as a leader, and the opportunity she sees for targeted radiopharmaceuticals as an emerging class of therapy, especially for tough-to-treat solid tumors. Toward the end, she has some advice for women in biotech. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, Elego Health Research. In the 10 years it takes for a new biopharmaceutical or device to be developed, more than 304 million people die waiting for treatment. Don't settle for slow, ineffective patient engagement. Not when people are counting on you. Elego Health Research gives you immediate access to known diverse patients so you can quickly get your product to the people who need it. Go to elegohealthresearch.com and get the patients you need right now because they've waited long enough. Now, please join me and Lori Lyons-Williams on the long run. Lori Lyons-Williams, welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. I'm happy to be here. So, Lori, um, can you start at the beginning? Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small farming community in rural Virginia and um, have an older brother and a younger sister and grew up um, with my family there. Wow. Um, okay. So I guess that's where the accent comes from. Uh, what, what kind of farming did your family do? My family, actually, uh, we were not farmers. My parents actually owned restaurants, um, kind of like a 50s-style diner uh, with car hops and (laughs) things like that. They actually owned a few restaurants. And so we had lots of farmers constantly coming into the restaurants. And I think from my very earliest years, I was interacting with customers and (laughs) getting to know people. And we were really a part of the community. Um, All of our friends, as we got older, kind of worked at my parents' restaurants. And um, it was a big part of our lives growing up. Interesting. So what kind of work? Did you just do everything there from an early age, like waitressing, cooking, cleaning, the whole bit? Yeah, a little bit of all of it. Um, Probably more on the waitressing side. Um, Certainly as I got older, it was a part of what my siblings and I would do to earn extra money. Or, you know, I I played sports growing up, so I would work to pay for basketball camps and things like that. Um, and we did help a little bit in the kitchen, certainly on the cleaning side we did. Um, but it was really a part of all of our lives and probably instilled in us, um, interacting with people a lot and, and also, you know, working for what we thought was most important to us. And uh, learning about business, I suppose that would have been your first education. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I come actually from a family I consider myself from a family of entrepreneurs. My my parents, um, neither of whom went to college, really started a variety of different businesses through the years. And when I was growing up, as I said, it was restaurants. Um, they now own a real estate company. They just they keep starting other businesses, and so they have a very strong sense of um, entrepreneurship. And I guess maybe in some ways that's in my DNA. Um, And they did not go to college, but instead just kind of made their own way. And then also, I think, set the stage for my brother, my sister and I to really make education um, a part of our world in a way that we could hopefully uh, find ourselves in different positions as well. So it's a really interesting way to grow up. And definitely, I think a lot of the life lessons I took from that environment uh, play through in the work that I've done, not only at Abdera, but frankly, in all the roles I've had leading up to now. 
Huh, okay, so they valued education. What kind of student were you in those kind of middle school, high school years? I was always a pretty driven student, I would say, uh, very interested in science and math. I uh, was fortunate to go to a small school, but a school, a public school with great teachers and people who really took an interest in what I was interested in. So, um, I mean, even in high school, I found myself with opportunities to do some research at a, a university um, through the help of one of my teachers and some connections that he had there. And so I just was always fueling, I think, this curiosity. Um, neither of my parents were scientists and, you know, didn't necessarily have that background, but it was something that I was always interested in academically. And then ultimately, I decided to uh, study science in undergrad as well. Uh-huh. And where'd you go to college? I went to Virginia Tech. I'm a very proud Hokie. Okay. And uh, and what did you want to study or did you have an idea early on about what your career might be? Yeah, what I actually thought I would do, Luke, is go to med school. So um, I started undergrad um, as a pre-med. I took all the hard sciences um, and really was interested in those. Did a little bit of research, although I would say I learned pretty quickly that I felt like that wasn't necessarily the right fit for me. Um, you know, kind of finding myself in a lab, interacting with fewer people and kind of doing the same types of work day in and day out was not something that I felt could fuel me long term. And so I think I was more interested in the application of science. And so I found myself on a pre-med track um, and actually really enjoyed it, although I would say that I was pretty shaped by volunteer work that I did when I was in college I didn't have any physicians in my family, but I was volunteering with a lot of people who, at the time, medicine was really changing quite dramatically. It's really the peak of when the shift over to a higher focus on managed care was happening. And so all of the physicians, pretty much, who I volunteered with guided me that medicine was changing so dramatically that if I was their daughter, they would guide me to do something else. And so, oh, wow. um, yeah, that kind of, I think, shook me as a 21-year-old and was like, oh, my gosh, well, I thought I was going to do this, and now I'm not quite so sure. Um, and so as I came out of college, I, you know, in talking to my parents and other people around me who were trying to help guide me, um, it was actually my mom who shared with me the idea of, maybe exploring pharmaceuticals. And so she said to me, you know, you could think about doing something like pharmaceutical sales that would allow you to at least get close enough to medicine that you can decide for yourself if you feel like the life you see people living is the one you want. And, you know, you have some time to figure it out. And so um, that's actually what I ended up doing. I got my first job with Johnson & Johnson as a sales rep right out of college. Um, and that kind of put me into the industry, which I've now been in for the entirety of my career. Huh. So what did you learn as a beginning sales rep in pharmaceuticals? You know, I learned a lot about the impact and influence we can have as organizations um, on the patients who ultimately you're hoping to um, to impact with these medicines. So I was very drawn to that, maybe similarly to how I thought about wanting to be a physician um, I was very drawn to what you can do as you discover, develop, commercialize products and get those into the hands of physicians who can actually improve the way they treat patients. So I was very drawn to that. I think the actual role of sales rep, um, I was fortunate enough to be successful in it. But frankly, I would say I didn't enjoy it a ton. It was a little bit too much monotony for me. It felt like this you know, it felt like Groundhog Day, I would say. <laughs> um, and I was having the same conversations over and over. And so... But this was the time when uh, sales reps would have more face-to-face -face interactions with physicians? Oh, certainly. Yeah, I was I was a sales rep kind of in the heyday of when you had pretty good access to physicians. Um, you could actually, you know, still interact with them in the office, outside the office, um, obviously, the roles I was in, we were very focused on trying to lead with science and share data in a way that we thought would be helpful. Um, so that part, I think, was really good. It was it, quite different than it is now. Um, but it still felt like a lot of the same conversation. And I feel like one of the themes for me in my life, professionally and personally, is that 
I'm very constantly kind of seeking more. And so when I once I feel like I've learned something and understand how to do it, it usually drives me to want to do something new and learn something different. And so I think I found myself, you know, kind of coming out of the sales rep role feeling that way. Okay, so you uh, you learned what you what that was about um, fairly quickly. What real quick, just what products were you uh, selling at the time? My very first job, I sold a product called Regranex um, for Johnson & Johnson. It was a topical growth hormone that was indicated to treat um, basically diabetic foot ulcers. Uh, so it would regrow human skin for patients who had um, ulcers or lesions on their skin. Um, it was a really interesting product. That was my very first experience. And then I sold in women's healthcare. I sold um, the birth control pill and some hormone replacement therapy. So I had a few different jobs at Johnson & Johnson first and then ultimately moved over to Allergan. I was a rep at Allergan where I sold some indications for Botox and um, and then ultimately was ended up being there for 15 years in a variety of different roles. Well, let's talk a little bit about Allergan and Botox because um, that turned into a very big product that really built that company. Um, what um, what did you start out doing there and how did it evolve over time? My very first job at Allergan was as a sales rep in the dermatology sales force. So we were promoting indications for Botox in aesthetics, so Botox cosmetic and also um, Botox for hyperhidrosis, excessive sweating. Um, and then we also had some other topical products that we sold as well. And so I touched Botox from my very earliest days at Allergan and then through a variety of different roles, um, had an opportunity to work in multiple different specialties, different indications, and and also different functions within the organization. So I do feel like that product over the 15 years that I spent at Allergan was always kind of um, touching my experience in one way or another. And I was there during just an incredible period for the company. Um, it was largely driven by Botox. You're right about that. And we kept layering on new indications and new specialties. Um, but it really helped me to learn a lot about business um, from sales, marketing, strategy, drug development. Um, it really shaped a lot of, I think, who I am and what my experience has been in the industry. Yeah, you know, I think most people know of that product for its cosmetic uses, um, the the injections that you know, do away with wrinkles. Uh, but there was a lot more to the story. I actually know a physician friend from way back who who would prescribe it often for spasticity, uh, like a like a frozen shoulder or um, like nerves that just aren't firing right, <laughs> and uh, it it had like a positive effect, allowing people more freedom of movement with their arms. And I don't think that many people really know about that. You you certainly did. Yeah. The interesting thing about that, Luke, is that what most people don't know is the therapeutic uses for Botox are actually the first uses of the product uh, long before it was indicated for aesthetic purposes. And the business is actually bigger on the therapeutic side than it is on the cosmetic side. And so spasticity, um, cervical dystonia, blepharospasm, all of these things are kind of neuro disorders that um, were well developed before we started to layer on indications for aesthetics. By the time I joined Allergan, actually, I think my first day at the company happened to be the uh, launch meeting for Botox Cosmetics. So some of that history predated me. Um, but it is a really rich business that has a lot of different uses. And we used to refer to it as really a, um, a product in a, in a vial, right, an entire portfolio and franchise in a vial because we continued to layer on different uses, which were really in large part driven by the physicians who would tinker around with the toxin. So a lot of what we ultimately ended up adding indications on would follow the science for physicians who would have a theory about what potentially you could use the neurotoxin for, and then we would run studies and validate that and ultimately get it approved through the FDA. I hear you use that phrase, follow the science. I think that's an important one I want to come back to. Um, because, you know, there's um, there can be this uh, tension between the R&D side of pharmaceuticals and the sales and marketing side. And I, I'm sure you've seen this in meetings or experiences over the years. I wonder, how, how do you think about the way um, these uh, different sides of the house 
can and should work together? Well, I think both are really critically important, Luke, and I probably, you know, appreciate that based on the variety of roles that I've been fortunate enough to to have. When I say follow the science, and I, I believe everything starts um, and begins and should always be driven by the science, really what we're all trying to do at our core, whether in individual roles or at a larger organizational level, we're trying to drive innovation in a way that first and foremost, makes sense biologically and clinically. And so uh, we have to ask the right questions. We have to, you know, conceive of products and design trials in ways that allow us to answer those questions. But when the data tell us something, I think we have to listen. And so I think that that foundational part is really important, no matter what your role is, what therapeutic area you're working on, what new indication you might pursue. And then I think that the other side of it is really where is the unmet need? And at, at its core, I don't think commercialization is too much more complicated than that. You have to ask the question of what, what are you solving that isn't currently being solved for? Or how can you solve that issue in a potentially better way? And so obviously, based on my background, I've you know, done a lot of analysis through the years to try to frame what unmet need might be for a patient, what physicians might be experiencing and trying to treat those patients, and then ideating around where you feel like you can create an opportunity. And sometimes you need to either advance or kill programs based on lack of scientific or biologic rationale or the data aren't what you expect. And sometimes you need to kill them because they don't make a ton of sense from a commercial perspective. And so I think we're trying in all the roles we're in to be holistic in the view and to really appreciate both sides of that before you make decisions uh, strategically for the company. Okay, well, we've kind of fast forwarded here a bit. These are some things you've learned along the way um, uh, and, and how really I think sales and marketing can uh, have that that two-way relationship, I think, with, with R&D, communicating things that you hear from the field and talking with physicians and, and patients um, and and uh, creating sort of a, a virtuous cycle, a feedback loop um, where where you're you're gaining more and more understanding of the needs and uh, the, the profile of your product, what it can do and and um, adjusting uh, accordingly. Okay, so um, you said you were there at Allegan for 15 years, kind of worked your way up uh, roles of increasing responsibility. Um, what was what was that like, those years at Allergan? That's right. I started as a sales rep. I was actually in Atlanta in a role in sales and then was fortunate enough to move to the Midwest. I lived in Minneapolis for a number of years and was a region manager there. So then I had an opportunity to lead a sales team. And I covered, I think, 15 or 16 states in the upper Midwest and you know, then had a responsibility to hire and recruit and retain and develop a team of people who could, um, you know, try to find success in the field as well. And while I was in that role, I was fortunate that I think Allergan saw some promise in maybe my professional development and they decided to send me to business school. So I had this science undergrad background, but had never taken a business course. So I had never had accounting or finance or marketing. And so while I was in my region manager role, they sponsored me and I went to business school. Um, I went to the University of Minnesota, the Carlson School of Management. And I did that while I was in the region manager role. Um, and that was an awesome experience because I think I learned a lot about the language of business and the process by which you do appropriately analyze opportunities. Um, I started to figure out the important pieces about financing um, companies and opportunities. And so I was very, I would say, inspired and intrigued by the things that I learned in business school. And so much so that the months that I graduated from that program, I moved out of the region manager role and had an opportunity to move to the home office with Allergan. Um, so then I took my first marketing role. So I moved from the Midwest to Orange County where Allergan was headquartered. And I had my very first role as a marketing manager on Botox for hyperhidrosis. Okay. Okay. So you moved to Southern California um, and uh, the company 
was doing well. It was growing. So there were opportunities for, for growth for you too. That's exactly the way to think about it. I, and I reflect on that a lot. I was very fortunate in the timing of my career at Allergan because the company was growing so rapidly at that point, Luke, that honestly, in some ways, we couldn't keep up from a talent perspective. <laughs> so if you were fortunate enough to do well in a role and then, you know, crazy enough maybe to raise your hand and say you wanted to do something more or something different, there it felt like there was always an opportunity. And so... I came into this marketing role really, you know, I felt like in a lot of ways I had no idea what I was doing. I was fresh out of business school. Um, I was working on a product that, or an indication for Botox that had already launched and had not necessarily found its niche yet. It had not found a ton of success. And in some ways, it was an indication that the organization wasn't super focused on. And in my world, that gave me a great opportunity because I felt like um, hopefully I couldn't screw it up too badly. <laughs> and um, and I also had a chance to learn. So I came in, you know, did market research, really sought to understand what the position was in the market and um, how we might be able to think about things differently and had an opportunity to almost, you know, kind of relaunch the way we thought about that product and um, was fortunate enough to find some success in doing that. And then that kind of set off the trajectory of my career in the home office, whereby I started to get, you know, kind of roles of increasing responsibility. How did you reposition that product? Yeah, so the original launch plan for Botox hyperhidrosis was one where um, we thought we understood that it would likely be... Um, men who were using the product more frequently. Um, men tend to be heavier sweaters than women if you were to make a generalization. Um, and then there was an initial targeting for uh, essentially uh, more blue collar workers who had good insurance coverage and people thought that that might be a good place to position the product. And so what I did is talk to patients who were actually using the product and were happy. I talked to physicians and what they had learned in the early days of the launch to um, understand exactly who they found were saying yes to Botox for hyperhidrosis. And we actually learned that it was exactly the opposite in terms of the demographic who was most interested. It actually tended to be more young professional women who found themselves in the workplace and in settings where it wasn't socially acceptable to sweat. And they wanted something that could actually control that in a way that was easy for them um, to use. And so we kind of repositioned the demographic we were going after. Um, and then we found some success with the marketing campaign and um, ultimately started to, to sell more. And so I wasn't in that role a long time, but it gave me a really good opportunity to just ask questions, do research, try to kind of bring it back to the most basic premises and, you know, then put in the Salesforce hands some tools that would allow them to maybe better position the product. That's really interesting. And I, presumably the clinical data suggested that the product would, you know, it would work in the same or different demographics. That didn't really matter, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. Clinically speaking, uh, there was efficacy, you know, in both groups and, and frankly, in wide groups of patients. So we weren't limited by that. Interesting. And so how how much growth did uh, the company see in this indication? Like gave you some <laughs> taste of success? It definitely did. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Botox, because it has so many indications, is that the organization doesn't generally speak a lot publicly about how all of those individual components add up to the total for Botox therapeutic or cosmetic. But we saw a really nice um, increase in sales and that really helped to, um, you know, frankly, get me a little bit of exposure to different levels of the organization. Um, funny enough, when I took that role very early, like a month, within a month of taking the role, my boss and my boss's boss both moved on. One left the company and one was repositioned to run the Asia business. And so I found myself reporting directly to the president of North America as this marketing manager who basically had no idea what she was doing. And while intimidating, I think that really did change the trajectory of my career because he got to see the way in which I worked and he got to see some of this uh, you know, analysis and repositioning that I did. And because he saw that, 
so closely in a way that probably he wasn't intended to, it really opened up a lot of doors for me and helped me to kind of get into some of the next opportunities that I had. So that that president of North America ended up promoting me a number of times in the times that I spent at Allergan. And so I'm really grateful now that that happened, although at the time it was a little bit intimidating. That's really interesting that, uh, you know, at first he probably looked at who is this young person in marketing? Um, and then quickly you made a good impression. Um, and that, that opened a lot of doors. Um, and, and and this and so did you start thinking about yourself in different terms in your career trajectory like maybe maybe you should strive for senior management you know i think i really had that desire and vision from very early days luke i don't think i necessarily knew what the path would look like or where i would end up um but i remember actually, even back when I was a rep, having a very funny conversation with my now husband, who I was dating at the time. And um, we still laugh about it to this day. But when I was at that crossroads trying to figure out if I would go back to medical school or stay in pharmaceuticals, he said to me, well, if you don't go to medical school, what do you think you'll do? And I said, well, maybe I'll become a CEO. And he literally laughed at me on the phone. And he's like, what are you even talking about? You know, at the time, we both worked for Fortune 500 companies. And he also was in sales and marketing. And he's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. But for me, uh, maybe in some ways, because of the background I have with my parents, I just didn't understand constraints and limitations in the same way. And I felt like if it was something that I wanted to do, I could try to figure out a path to get there. And so I wouldn't say that that first marketing job made me feel like I was on my path to CEO, but I definitely was always on a path to be drawn to ask new questions, stretch myself and grow. And so it maybe inspired in me the opportunity to try to raise my hand to do more. And I was lucky enough that Allergan gave me a chance to do some of those things. That's cool. Uh, it sounded a little uh, outlandish at the time, I suppose, in your 20s. Uh, but um, uh, here you are. <laughs> um, okay, so let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, you, you had this good experience with Allergan. What was your, how did it culminate? What was your last role there? My last role was essentially a gener general manager role. I was a head of sales and marketing for the urology business unit. So to back up just maybe one step, um, much like I was describing before, urologists had started to tinker with Botox in the bladder. So they would access the bladder through a cystoscope and then inject the toxin into the lining of the bladder wall to relax the muscle there. And so I worked alongside a team of researchers who designed trials, first for neurogenic detrusor overactivity and then ultimately for overactive bladder to work through the studies we would need to and ultimately get a couple of indications approved for Botox in the bladder. And then I was lucky enough to be able to start the division from the ground up and, you know, hire out the sales and marketing team and really build the go-to-market strategy for that business unit. And in some ways, Luke, I think that that started to maybe spark the entrepreneurial bug in me um, that was maybe in my DNA for my parents. But then having that experience where, you know, we certainly still had the support of the Fortune 500 company behind us. I wasn't inventing a lot of new things, but I was really challenged to think about if you're going to start something from the ground up, what will it look like? Because it turns out urologists are way different than neurologists and aesthetic physicians, et cetera. So um, that was an awesome experience for me and really enjoyed the opportunity to build the strategy, the team, um, and ultimately see a lot of great sales trajectory from both of those indications for Botox. And that was the role I was in um, up through the end. So um, it was a really great learning experience all the way around. It sounds like you enjoyed that interaction with the scientists because, you know, they've got their questions and they're looking at what the product does for in this organ. And, uh, and you're collaborating there and thinking this through, like, how will this actually affect the patient and the physicians and, uh, answering th their types of questions. I think that's right. I definitely enjoy the collaboration. And frankly, I enjoy the learning process. There's so much I can learn from groups of people like that, that I don't know. And I think it's really the totality of those 
experiences that can help you make good decisions as business leaders. You can get the input from the scientific team, the clinical team, obviously the sales and marketing team as well. And I have just always been very drawn to the intersection of all of those factors to try to, you know, take all the inputs and and make the right decision and hopefully get to better outcomes. So I think that was really instrumental in what I decided I wanted to do next. Um, And certainly still count myself grateful to have walked walked alongside a lot of really good scientists at Allergan. Now, how did you make the move to smaller companies, to biotech? So about a year and a half before I left Allergan, you might recall we were the target of a hostile takeover situation. So um, oh, yeah. I'm sure you were covering that. And um, it was really fascinating as a business leader. I was leading the business unit at that point. We would literally wake up every morning to headlines on the Wall Street Journal <laughs> talking about this uh, this situation. And frankly, as you might recall, the street really wanted that deal to happen. So as Valiant was working to try to take over Allergan, um, at the time, it was before Valiant really fell apart. And so they the, the street wanted that deal to happen. And David Pyatt, who was the CEO at the time, um, I think did a really masterful job internally, externally with the board um, of navigating through that situation. And those of us who ran the business units were really just focused on, frankly, hitting our numbers, continuing to perform in a way that would put David in a position to be able to navigate what he needed. And so that was an interesting learning experience for me. And then I, as you know, we found kind of the white knight and activists and ultimately ended up merging Allergan and activists together. And so I stayed about a year and a half under um, Brent's leadership after he took over the company and David left. Brent Saunders. Brent Saunders, yeah. Now, now, uh, just for po- people who may not remember this, Valiant Pharmaceuticals was, um, I think it was based in Canada, uh, but it had grown really fast and it had a McKinsey consultant in charge of this. They had acquired a whole bunch of products, put them together and really excessively raised the prices and uh, became quite controversial and, and uh, as you say, ended up falling apart. So kind of a good thing that um, you didn't get acquired by that one. <laughs> yeah, it turns out in the end that I think David's position that he was advocating for publicly um, turned out to be right. Um, but it was an interesting experience to live through. You know, I still remember uh, those of us who were running the businesses. We were actually on our way to Toronto, all on the same flight for a meeting. And you could see all these heads start to pop up um, as we were seeing news flow after the market closed that, you know, they had started to take a position in the company and had built up a nice stock position. And so uh, that was really our our entry into understanding what was happening. So anyway, that, that experience, I think, shaped me a lot as a leader. And then I had the opportunity to work um, in the new Allergan under Brent Saunders and others. And, you know, they were quite different in their approach and strategy as well. So he was very active on the business development front, as I'm sure you'll remember. And so I felt like I was exercising new muscles in that way to learn, you know, other other parts of the business that we had not been as active on previously. And um, that was a great experience uh, for about a year and a half or so. And then I ultimately decided that I felt like I might be able to stretch myself into more of an emerging company and maybe take on some additional responsibilities. So in addition to having this commercial background, I really was eager to learn you know, how to raise capital, how to interact with investors. And so I was fortunate to take a role as chief commercial officer at Dermira, which was a publicly traded company here in the Bay Area, and had a chance to do just that, learn from a really strong executive team on the pieces that I didn't know and understand, um, and then hopefully provide for them some of the commercial experience that they needed as they were moving from development stage to commercial. Mm-hmm. That comes back to what you said earlier about once you learn something, you, you kind of get hungry to learn the next thing. And so you're layering on new skills here uh, on top of your commercial background. That's exactly right. That's precisely how I thought about it and and knew that I needed to learn those things um, and for sure had no interest in doing those the first time on my own. And so I was really intentional in choosing a team who I thought I could learn from. Today's sponsor is Elgo Health Research. Patient engagement in clinical trials doesn't have to be an exercise in patients. Elgo, the ultimate patient provider, offers immediate access to millions of known diverse patients 
and works with you to ensure your protocol works in a real-world healthcare environment. The result? Efficient, easy enrollment and increased diversity. It's simple. When your trial needs patience, you need Elego. Start enrolling at elegohealthresearch.com. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column that concisely covers the issues of the week, plus insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing expert writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions provide a license to companies who have more than one reader. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. So you're at Dermira for a while. Um, and then, uh, well, when we first talked to you, you went to Numora, which was uh, uh, neuroscience, like big ambitious play uh, backed by Arch Ventures. Uh, what drew you to that one? Yeah, so I was at Dermira until we exited to Eli Lilly. So I, you know, kind of found myself uh, without a job, <laughs> happily so for a little bit of the pandemic, so I could reground myself and have some time with my family. Um, and then I just thought about, you know, what I wanted to do next. And I do think that common theme of wanting to stretch and learn and grow more was present when I took the role at Numora as well. So I was president and COO there. It was my first private company. And I would say, Luke, that I was drawn to earlier and earlier stage companies because I really felt like through my experience at Dermira, where I was employee number 95, I learned that really to be influential in setting the the strategy, the culture, you know, building the team, you actually have to get there even a little bit earlier. And so I was drawn to private companies, earlier stage companies, and found um, a good opportunity to work alongside uh, the Arch team and the team that had come together at Numora, and you know, really for the first time have the research and development team reporting to me, the portfolio, all of those kind of functions that I had partnered with previously but had not had the direct responsibility for. Um, that was kind of what the opportunity at, at Numora was about. Yeah, yeah. A lot of big decisions get made in those early days, and uh, you, you they're not easy to unwind <laughs> or, 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 re, or redo. Years go by. Um, okay, so you're there for a little while. Now let's talk about Abdera, because this is your current company, and I, I really I think this is an interesting area. You've entered here with targeted radio pharmaceuticals for cancer. Uh, so I guess tell us tell me the story here about how you got drawn to this startup opportunity. Yeah, so I had known the Versant team for quite some time, and Versant Ventures led the Series A for Abdera, and they had already closed the Series A for the company before I joined. And so I got a call from Gerald Davis, who I've known for quite some time. I've served on a Versant-backed company board for a number of years. And he asked me if I would have any interest in exploring an opportunity in radio pharmaceuticals. And to be totally honest, Luke, based on board work that I've done, I knew I wanted an early stage company. I knew I wanted um, an oncology company. Those were things I was looking for. And I, I definitely was interested in trying to figure out if there was a CEO role that would be right for me. Um, but I didn't know anything about the targeted delivery of radiotherapeutics at that point. And so when Gerald called me, it really required me to start to diligence the opportunity in a way where I had to fundamentally educate myself a little bit. Because as you know, um, there had been a couple of attempt, attempts at targeted radiotherapeutics, you know, dating back a number of years. But there really is an emergence on the development and now commercial side that I was not you know, super close to. And so I needed to, to understand that a little bit. And to be totally honest, what I saw as a former commercial person is that this is about to undergo a massive inflection point. So it's expected to become a $30 billion market even before the end of the decade. There's a lot of exciting things happening coming out of the clinic from a lot of different companies. And obviously, we all know that Pluvicto is off to a great start, which is a targeted radiotherapeutic targeting PSMA. And so I just became very intrigued by the overall opportunity I saw in radiotherapeutics. And then when I started to diligence 
the science and the idea behind Abdera, I felt that they were very differentiated in their specific approach to how they wanted to solve the targeted delivery of radiotherapeutics. And so it was a combination of the the market opportunity, the science, the team, um, frankly, the investors who are around the table, all of those things kind of had me leaning forward. And in May of last year, I decided to to jump in. Okay, well, I want to get into some more of the details on Abdera a little bit later. But before that, for those who just aren't that familiar with targeted radio pharmaceuticals, I mean, <laughs> I've been covering this area actually since almost the beginning of covering biotech 20 years ago. Uh, Bexar and Zevelin, who, you know, I'm sure you came across those names in your diligence. Those were kind of early generation anti-CD20 um, you know, targeted radiation drugs with antibodies that were actually quite effective. Like the clinical data showed that they were quite good for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, but they failed in the marketplace uh, for a bunch of reasons, like reimbursement related, collaboration of different physician specialties had something to do with it. Um, they just, well, and they were up against rituxan, uh, on a naked antibody that was actually doing quite well, and especially in combination with chemo. So like, here you have, um, drug uh, 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 a uh, a modality that appears to be delivering a, a good profile these are FDA approved products helping people but failing in the marketplace so there was that but then uh, some some um actual uh, some bigger fundamental changes happened with um the PSMA targeting and the other one for um well there's Pluvicto and now Lutathera can you tell the story of those products that came along here, I want to say five years or so ago, and, and kind of changed the story? That's exactly right. So there's been about $10 billion in M&A activity, primarily driven by Bayer and Novartis. And that's really led to the development and now commercialization, approval and commercialization of the products you're talking about. So Novartis acquired a company called AAA, and they also acquired a company called Indocyte. And that's led to the approval of Lutathera and Plavicto, which are the the two products that you're referring to. So, you know, both of those products have found commercial success, I would say particularly Pluvicto, which is about a year into its launch and is already annualizing at about a billion dollars in sales. So it's off to quite a nice start. And I think it's really causing people to take pause and really pay attention to targeted radio pharmaceuticals in ways that maybe previously it was easier to dismiss based on Zevalin and Bexar, as you referred to earlier. So the development of these products, Luke, as you know, um, they're leveraging a beta emitter called lutetium-177. And frankly, I think what's happened is that the clinical data are so compelling that people are very interested in kind of imagining what the future of targeted delivery of radio pharmaceuticals could could mean for the treatment of solid tumors that are really difficult to treat. And so I think what has happened is that's driven a lot of interest because you saw these acquisitions happen, you're seeing the commercial sales trajectories. It has meant that there's been more private capital that has uh, flown into some of these companies. There's been a lot of company formation. Um, and then there's, you know, a fair amount of development at small companies and maybe to a lesser extent, larger, larger companies. Um, but I think that the wave is certainly starting to come and people see both the clinical promise and, and now for the first time they see kind of the hints of this commercial success that maybe starts to help people, you know, f forget some of what they remember from Bexar and Zeblin. Right. So just to talk about Pluvicto for a second, that one targets... PSMA, prostate-specific membrane antigen, um, to target on prostate cancer cells. Now, there are some pretty good treatments for prostate cancer um, that are orally available, and I'm sure people get immunotherapies as well. Um, but here you have um, this targeted antibody with radiation that, you know, it's radiation. It really packs a punch against the tumor. And what have we seen in terms of the, the clinical data, the difference that it makes? Yeah, it really gets to the mechanism that I think is differentiating. You're right that it packs a punch. Um, and so these uh, radio isotopes can really create DNA strand breaks where you can be confident that you're actually going to kill the tumor cell. And so what that has meant is that 
you can almost drive a truck through the separation in the curves for um, the the beta emitter data versus what you see in more traditional therapies. And so you see an overall survival benefit, um, you see an extension of life. And, and that, I think, is something that makes people take pause to say, this mechanism is, you know, not requiring that you engage the immune system. It's not interrupting any metabolic pathway. It is if you can deliver the isotope to the tumor and selectively to the tumor, which is really important, then you can actually know that you're going to be able to to kill the cancerous cell. And there's a lot of good data preclinically on that and now a building body of evidence clinically for lutetherin plavicto that you're referring to and frankly for a lot of other programs that are in development. So I think some of the things to come are that, as you know, we expect to see somewhat of a um, a shift from the beta emitters to the alpha emitters. And so while no- Novartis is, you know, launching Indocyte and Lutathera, leveraging Lutetium-177, there's a lot of good clinical data coming out now for Actinium-225, whereby even patients who have previously been treated with beta emitters can see really powerful results with the alpha emitters. So there's just so many places that I think we're going to see this modality go that can really be helpful. I think eventually what you're going to see is it's going to move to earlier stages of treatment. I think you're going to see it move into different targets, not so focused on PSMA, which is where a lot of the work has been done to date. Um, it's really been a handful of targets that have been developed so far in in radiopharmaceuticals. And Abdera is a good example of starting to expand beyond PSMA and somatostatin into some new and we think also exciting targets. Okay. Now, you mentioned solid tumors. These things really bomb the solid tumors that are hard to treat uh, with the, well, Immunotherapy, I mean, just to zoom back to 30,000 feet, I mean, that has been a big revolution to hit cancer over the last 10 years. Lots and lots of indications are are quite amenable to the immunotherapies or cell therapies. Antibody drug conjugates are kind of related, a a related modality. They've found an increasing role in the treatment of cancer, where you combine that targeting capability of the antibody with um, a potent chemical toxin. Um, to to give it extra tumor killing punch, um, but they we we now know too that they don't work for as well for certain targets. So this is kind of where targeted radiation may be finding its niche. Is this what you're seeing? I think that's exactly right, Luke. And you know maybe to pick up on the example you're um, articulating, I, I would speak to lung cancer for a minute. If you think about non small cell lung cancer. Um, you know, after patients are treated with chemo, they do actually tend to see in second line and third line um, better responses to IO therapies. And we've seen some nice advancements in, in clinic there. If you look at small cell lung cancer, which is a subset of about 15% of all lung cancers, we actually haven't seen the same thing on the IO side. And so I think there are these pockets of solid tumors where for whatever reason, they're just still really difficult to treat. And so in small cell lung cancer, you know, you have less than a 5% five-year survival rate. You have patients that very rapidly deteriorate and, you know, without treatment can actually die within six to eight weeks. And so um, where you saw advancement in IO in the larger population for lung cancer, you haven't really seen it in small cell lung cancer yet. And that happens to be our indication that we're going after with our first program. And some of the preclinical data that we've collected so far are quite compelling in terms of what we think we can deliver. And it really is that difference in the mechanism that you're describing that we think is so powerful. So we know, you know, radiation at large has been used for more than 100 years. It's a mainstay of cancer treatment. It's used in more than 50 percent of all cancer cases. The problem is it's a pretty blunt instrument. And so the idea behind Abdera and other companies like us is the is the opportunity to more specifically target that microdose of radiation, ideally to the tumor and, and not to the healthy tissue in a way that helps you to widen that therapeutic index um, much more so than you could with using external beam radiation. More tumor killing power, less, uh, you know, collateral damage or toxicity to, to healthy tissues. Now, okay, so 
part of what I think is really interesting about radio pharmaceuticals is there's a number of kind of fundamentals that you have to think through to create your target, your product profile that you want. There's starting with the right antigen, the target. There's the the targeting agent, which in your case is an antibody. Uh, then there's like how you attach the antibody to uh, the the payload, the, the radiation in this case, and then the choice of what radioactive isotope uh, you want to use. So how are you thinking about this, uh, these series of fundamental questions at Abdera? This really gets to the core about why I was so excited to join this team and, and this company. The scientific co-founders of Abdera, um, Adam Judge and Mike Abrams, I think were quite smart in what they designed as what we think is a really unique delivery mechanism for the radioisotope. So the way we think about it, Luke, is um, we think there are a few important goals you want to set out with. First and foremost, based on what we've learned from the previous approaches, our team felt it was important to design a modality that could avoid clearance through the kidney uh, because the kidney is a radiosensitive organ. You have actually a hard cap on how much exposure you can deliver to the kidney, um, and that can limit your therapeutic window. And so we've instead engineered our antibodies to clear uh, through the liver, and we think that's important. Um, you mentioned that ours is an antibody approach. We knew we liked the targeting and specificity that an antibody can give you so that we can go after the cancer antigen of choice. But frankly, we also knew that it would be important to modify those antibodies in a way that you could limit the systemic exposure of the radiation. And so what we've designed is a single heavy chain antibody that can target specifically the cancer antigens of choice. We've seen a really nice sustained tumor effect, so good uptake and retention at the tumor, and then clearance from the background tissue. So we've essentially dialed in the PK to what we believe is an ideal PK specifically suited for radiopharmaceuticals instead of just taking some antibody off the shelf that might be circulating in your bloodstream for 10 or 15 days. That would have way too much radioactive exposure to the bone marrow. And so we've dialed it in to have a clearance profile of more like a day and a half so that we get that nice uptake at the tumor and then clear out of the healthy tissue. And what that means is that whether we're using the alpha emitter, the beta emitter, um, we're really able to approach the platform in a modular nature, as you're describing. So we design the antibody, we um, engineer the FC component, we are leveraging linkers and chelators to attach to either imaging or therapeutic isotopes in a way that allow us to move multiple programs forward. So it's kind of a different approach. Um, I think all the companies that are working in targeted radiotherapeutics are obviously trying to widen the therapeutic index, and we're just taking a slightly different tack to get there. The imaging part seems important because you can put um, like a fluorescent tag on one of these antibodies and see, well, just how much does it actually accumulate in the tumor versus uh, circulate through the rest of the system? And you can do this in different animal models, right, to see um, what kind of, uh, you know, dosing that you, you might want to go ahead with in people. Yeah, that's really one of the exciting components about drug development in radiotherapeutics. You can leverage, in our case, we're primarily leveraging NDM-111, so we can use the exact same antibody, the exact same linker and chelator, and use an imaging isotope, um, inject into animals or, you know, for us next year into humans, and that would actually allow you to see with SPECT imaging where is it going? And there are actually quantitative methods to measure that as well. Um, you can do dosimetry studies to actually quantify how much is in the tumor, how much of your injected dose gets to the tumor, how much is in the kidney, how much is in the liver, how much is in the bone marrow or the blood. And so those are important components to really help you understand the appropriate dosing and the dose escalation, which, of course, we're hopeful that we'll find ourselves in a position to be answering some of those questions next year because we've said publicly that we're going to file our first IND in 2024. Okay. And your first target that uh, you told me about a few months ago was DLL3. Why did you choose that one? 
Yeah, DLL3 is a target that is well understood, implicated in small cell lung cancer, as I referred to earlier. We liked it for a few reasons, Luke, for radiotherapy. So um, first and foremost, it's expressed on the cancer cell, but there's not um, really any significant healthy tissue expression. And because of the potency of the payload, we think that that's a really important criteria to consider when you're working to declare targets. Um, Secondly, I would say that we know that small cell lung cancer is a radiosensitive tumor. And so radiotherapy, um, the, the external beam radiation is an important part of therapy for patients who um, present with not advanced disease. And so we knew that the mechanism would be one that would likely work in, um, in small cell lung cancer. Um, we also know that there's not been a lot of things that can treat beyond chemotherapy. And so we felt that it was you know, a really nice unmet need um, that we could go after. And frankly, um, in some ways, we think that the targets like PSMA and somatostatin are well covered by other companies. And because we're designing our uh, molecules really from the ground up and customizing them with the appropriate PK, we felt that we could go after targets that were clinically validated, as we've seen with DLL3 from another, uh, a number of other big pharma companies, um, but that maybe other companies would not be able to reach. And so... Um, We just felt there was a good opportunity all the way around from the patient perspective, the unmet need, um, the radio sensitivity, the healthy tissue expression. All of these things are excited us about DLL3. And um, now we're hopeful that we'll be able to validate that in human patients as well. And are you seeing in the animals that uh, your your candidate is not accumulating in the kidneys and causing toxicity there? It's going through the liver and appears to be... uh, with a, what you think will be an acceptable tolerability profile? Yeah, we have very compelling preclinical data on the lead, as well as um, actually a number of other programs that we're advancing behind DLL3. So we see exactly what you described, Luke. We see nice penetration and accumulation of the tumor. When we translate that into um, in vivo efficacy, we have single-dose studies for lutetium and actinium that show complete ablation of the tumor. Um, And that's happening at a dose that is tolerated in the animals. And obviously that's important as well. And so we can see over the time course data that we look at that it does actually um, go to the liver first and then clear out quite rapidly. We can see that there's minimal accumulation at the kidney and these these other tissues that you're actually concerned about. Um, And we think that we've changed the PK profile in such a way that the, the bone marrow is not likely to be limiting in terms of toxicity um, because I think that is in transparency what you have to worry about with an antibody approach. And if, if we had a longer circulating half-life, I think that would be a real issue. But we've tried to be smart about the way in which we've designed the molecule to kind of take some of those constraints off the table. So it's about hitting that tumor hard and getting it out of your system fast. So it's not lingering. Yeah, that's exactly right. And through a lot of clinical data, we've dialed in exactly what we think that time frame should be. Um, you know, we've tested some uh, modifications of the platform where it clears even more rapidly. And frankly, it's always a trade-off, Luke. It, the faster you clear, the less accumulation you get at the tumor. And so it's through trial and error and really data collection that we can say, um, you know, when we quantify this and translate it into the efficacy models, how much accumulation do we need in order to get the tumor killing, but to, you know, really avoid those healthy tissues? So it will always be a balance. And, you know, we're realistic insofar as we have um, a lot of great animal data, but it's time for us to validate that in the clinic. And obviously, we're excited to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, you want to find the sweet spot for dose and duration. Um, Okay, so you say you're going to the clinic in 2024. Is that the plan? That's right. We um, have said that we plan to file ABD-147, which is our asset we're moving forward for small cell lung cancer, targeting DLL3 in 2024. And then maybe a couple other milestones I would call out would be that even you know late this year, we're going to have our first non-human primate data on the DLL3 program. 
early next year, we'll have non-human primate data on our second program. And then after we file the IND in 2024, the next step will really be getting those images that you referred to earlier. So leveraging the imaging isotope to really see for the first time in humans, is this accumulating in the tumor? And are we getting the, the nice ratio we hope to see for tumor to background um, on that first program? So really, a, I would say a host of really interesting milestones to come in the next, call it 12 to 15 months. Um, and obviously, we're working to scale the company and the team in a way that can support these programs. So um, we're kind of busy at that as well. And as a CEO, those some of those early slices of data are going to be very informative for the the longer term decisions that that are going to affect the company, uh, like the, the decision to invest a lot in a large development program. I mean, you're going to be able to make those decisions based on some of this data that we're talking about, how much of it accumulates in the tumor, how do, how much goes through the kidneys and the liver and the bone marrow, et cetera, what, what adjustments to the dose. But it sounds like you're going to get um, pretty good clarity uh, on your product profile early to hopefully, I mean, help increase your confidence that those bigger trials and enroll more people are, are likely to succeed. That's exactly right. I think it's one of the unique aspects of drug development in radio pharmaceuticals that's nice. And I, for one, am grateful that, you know, we should have some idea in just a handful of patients um, what we're seeing in terms of where the isotope is being delivered and how quickly you can clear it out. And if you think about it, Luke, there's not a lot of mystery on the mechanism. So, you know, it's well understood that the biodistribution you can demonstrate with the imaging isotope um, is going to be translated into the therapeutic one. And there's not a mystery about an alpha emitter like actinium-225. It's a double DNA strand break, so you can be quite confident that you're going to kill the cancerous cell. So what I like about this from a business perspective is that very early on in a small number of patients, we believe we should be able to figure out if we have our hands on a drug or not. And then, of course, as you would expect any company to do, we're continuing to iterate on the platform, both on this first program as well as the ones to come, because we want to really help to educate ourselves along the way. What can we learn on the DLL3 program that better informs the other targets that we've already started to move towards development candidates? And, you know, continue to ask those scientific questions in a rigorous way, continue to be led by the data that we talked about earlier, and really put ourselves in a position to continually innovate and um, advance the platform and the programs in a way that we think will be beneficial for the company. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I've had privilege to cover a number of other companies in sort of your, your class of emerging targeted radio pharmaceutical companies. And I, I think there's just a lot of really interesting work happening. Um, in startups, um, yours included. Uh, last thing, Lori, I want to ask you, it's a little bit personal, kind of circles back to some of the stuff we talked about earlier. Uh, you're on a few boards. Uh, you're CEO now, so taking on leadership in the industry. Um, do you um, have some words of advice to women, particularly in biotech, who aspire to leadership roles and doing the kind of things that you do? I appreciate you asking that question because it's something that I'm really passionate about, Luke. Um, I feel fortunate to have had the career that I've had so far. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to continue to make a difference in the companies that I'm a part of. And I think the advice I have for people is to keep raising your hand, keep asking for more. Um, we all are working to do our day jobs well, but then trying to strive to do the next thing. And one of the important pieces for me that I think is a theme that I look back on now that I can reflect on my career to some extent is to say, you know, I was never afraid to raise my hand and to say that I wanted to do something else, to learn something new. I worked really hard to surround myself with people who I thought knew things that I didn't know. And I'm still doing that. I mean, gosh, what I learned from our scientific and clinical team every day is vitally important. What I learned from board members at my company and the other companies that I serve is vitally important. What I learned from my network of other CEOs and important leaders in the industry is vitally important. And so um, I think my parents taught me that who you surround yourself with is really important. And that's something that has really played a key role in me finding my way to where I am. 
And so I would just say, be brave. Don't take yourself out of the game. Um, Keep asking for other things to do and contribute what you know you can contribute. I think we each kind of find the things that we're good at. And I've tried to, you know, stay true to myself and not pretend I'm good at things I'm not good at. (laughs) And so I spend more time maybe trying to lean into my strengths than to, um, you know, fill in gaps that I could better fill in by building a great team around me. And so I hope that's helpful. I definitely think that the world is starting to change. Um, Unfortunately for someone like me, who's a real driver, it never feels like it's changing rapidly enough. (laughs) But I'm very encouraged by the impressive leaders who I see, you know, coming up alongside me and behind me and feel like they should know they have an entire group of people, women in the industry who are willing to open doors for them and to help. And um, we're very committed to that as a group. As I think you know, there's a lot of us who spend a lot of time on that. And um, there's nothing that gets me more excited than that. You're part of that uh, sisterhood of biotech CEOs who who think about this uh, a lot, try to uh, open doors. That's exactly right. We try to open doors for other people in the industry. We try to, frankly, leverage um, the influence that we have to impact things that we think are important. And we're really there to support each other, Luke. I mean, the number of times that I've faced something for the first time that I can pick up the phone and call this group of people about um, is really inspiring. It's super helpful for me as a first time CEO. And we're really committed to trying to do the same thing for other leaders who are coming up as well. Well, it's really great advice, Lori. Probably a lot in there for men, too. Um, (laughs) But uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.